and Faisma all week. So some of you want to start praying now. You'll want to turn in your sermon outline. It's always a delight when we can have a baptism and uh, partial to the names of Emma and Benjamin, as I have grandchildren. With that, we don't have an Aaron. David, would you talk to your siblings? So, I have um, learned that the, uh, it is uh, good to be here. This is an interesting passage we have today. It's the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm a little partial to this passage, um, mostly because the very first Sunday school class I ever taught, which was approximately 1985, I had just been promoted to captain, and I taught a Sunday school class at our church in South Carolina, and I taught it on this passage, and uh, I'm sure it was terrible, but there was a professor from Columbia Bible College who sat in on the class. It was the young adult class, and he wasn't a young adult, so I have no idea what he was doing there. But he sat in on the class, Dr. Igu Hodges, who is now retired. And um, after the class, he came up and he said, you ought to consider doing this for a living. I don't know if that was the very first time somebody said that, but it was pretty close, and it was around this passage. This is a little different passage because it also uh, assumes a lot that these are all believers. These are people who already know Jesus. This is not so much of a come to Jesus passage or as it is, uh, you know, act in accordance with what you already know and what you already believe kind of passage. So it'll be a little bit uh, different. So let's turn there, 1 Corinthians 12. I know your bulletin says 12 through 26, but I'm going to go through verse 27 because, because. Um, so let's turn there and listen carefully as this is God's word. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of hearing? Or an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. 
But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We're always in need of it. We do need the gospel. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for all the problems of our lives. We need to know that whatever we struggle with as individuals, insecurity and or pride, that the answer to those issues are found in Christ. We need to know that whatever we struggle with as a church, division and how we think of others, fear and how we think of ourselves, the answer to those issues are found in Christ as well. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, so much the emphasis of this chapter before us. We ask that you would pour him out upon us, that he might give light to our understanding and heat to our hearts. Thank you that 1 Corinthians is a love letter to both the proud and the insecure, pointing us to Jesus. We need him more than ever, and so we pray, by the power of the Spirit, help us see Jesus. Amen. Amen. I uh, forgot to note, meant to note earlier, uh, Dave Dorst is preaching at Wallace Presbyterian Church this morning, so please pray for him. Um, it's always different when you preach to a congregation where you don't know the people. That really changes the dynamic. So uh, I'm sure he would appreciate uh, your support of him this morning in doing that. So one of the most exciting experiences uh, in my, of my uh, middle school years was playing trumpet in the school band. Now, as I was terrible, it was far more exciting for my teacher than it was for me. And mercifully, the experiment didn't last long. However, since my mother is a music teacher, and uh, my daughter is a music teacher, and my son-in-law is a music teacher, and all my children took music lessons, we have gotten to go to our fair share of concerts by the school band, the marching band, the pit band, the wind symphony, and the full orchestra. And we've seen them at the middle school, high school, collegiate, community, and professional levels. And though there were few concerts along the way that I just as soon forget about. Uh, most of them were pretty good. And some of them were simply outstanding. See, when everybody's doing their part, even though they're playing this whole variety of instruments, they're all playing different uh, multiple parts. Somehow it all fits together. And it makes this wonderful combined sound. Although I have to admit, when a family member is conducting, I have a small bias. Very small, probably inconsequential. But one thing I've discovered from this lifelong music education is that there are class distinctions within an orchestra. The strings consider themselves superior to all others. They are the senior section. They carry the tune in many classical works. And within the strings, 
the violins consider themselves superior. Is that correct? I, I, I just need to ask someone who plays the cello, do the violins consider themselves superior? Yeah, of course. Now, we don't want to just pick on the strings. Because within the wind section, too, there are distinctions. The flutes and oboes consider themselves vastly superior to the brass instruments. And within the brass, the trumpets definitely regard themselves as superior to the trombones. In fact, I've been told they call it low brass for non-musical reasons. It seems then that the only form of musical life lower than the trombone is the tuba, the triangle, and the timpani. With my apologies to the tuba player. So all this is meant in good fun, but it does create a strange hierarchy among musicians. And of course, there are moments when everyone depends on an instrument that's normally looked down upon. You couldn't start Mozart's The Magic Flute unless the trombones are in good form. You couldn't play Dvorak's New World Symphony unless you have a first-class English horn player. An English horn is similar to an oboe. Probably not helping some of you. Anyway, sooner or later, as you work your way through the musical uh, selection, the instruments have to acknowledge that they all need each other if the music is going to be complete. And the problem that Paul is now confronting in Corinth is that within the Corinthian orchestra, so to speak, there are some who consider themselves superior to others. And there's a danger as a result that the whole symphony might be out of balance or even played out of tune. And Paul writes this section of the letter, in fact, almost as if it's a symphony uh, in and of itself. Chapter 12 is the opening movement. In our passage today, you have an introduction leading to a great statement of the central tune. Normally, I would say theme, but it doesn't go with the music thing here. Uh, verses 12 and 13, explored from several angles in verses 14 through 26, before the theme is then restated in verse 27. And then comes the second movement, this lyrical, gentle, very powerful section, very poetic section about love in chapter 13. And, and chapter 13 is so well known that people often forget it was originally written to be the centerpiece of a longer section on building community and overcoming division. I, I, I hate to uh, disillusion some of you. Chapter 13 was not specifically written for weddings. Um, there is some application there. I'm back on now. Well, get a battery handy. Where was I? Then we have an extensive third movement, chapter 14, 
where Paul takes the theory of chapter 12, seen in light of chapter 13. battery okay here we go so we take the theory of chapter 12 in light of 13 apply it to 14 which is a tension between how people practice their spiritual gifts so now Paul's just stating some basic principles that are actually going to control the next couple of chapters and so in terms of the illustration uh, that we've used so far, we would put it like this. Yes, there are different instruments, but they all require the same level of musicianship. There are different styles of playing, but they all follow the same conductor. And there are different tones and volumes of playing, but it's the same composer who wrote the piece and whose music has to come through. But the fact is, learning to live as one, to think as uh, or in we categories, is not easy. It takes time and effort and hard work. It's challenging to live out our unity together. Certainly the case for the Corinthians. They had a hard time learning to live in unity. And so Paul takes this extended metaphor of the human body and uses it to help them and us see the importance and practicality of Christian unity. He starts by telling us, verse 12, we're joined by one spirit. That's the first blank there in your outline. I just noticed Kyle Michael is back. Welcome back. So, we're joined by one spirit. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul introduces the theme here. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So let's stop and think about this for a moment, because there's an unusual way, verse 12 ends that ought to register with us. We would expect Paul to say, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with the church. He's talking about the church. The metaphor of the body with diverse parts is a metaphor for the church, but that's not what he says. He says, so it is with Christ. Why does he do that? Well, he wants us to understand, even though he's using the body as a metaphor, it's a metaphor pointing us to something that is fundamental and real. He wants us to know there's a spiritual reality behind this image that he's painting. And when we become Christians, we don't simply join a club. We're rather joined, we were connected, we were united to Christ by a mysterious, powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And when we were joined and connected and united to Christ, we were also united to every other Christian united to Christ. So there's this profound and fundamental unity 
whether you see it or not, whether you feel it or not, between every single believer and the Savior and every believer and every other believer in the Savior. And Paul is saying that it's an intimate, it's profound as the differing parts of the human body. Which means, by implication, that to live in disharmony, to give place to division in the church, is to contradict the fundamental spiritual reality of who we are in Christ. We are one essentially and fundamentally. And disunity is to live at odds with who we are as Christian people. Now look at verse 13 because it tells us how we become united uh, with Christ and therefore united with each other. He says, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now in the chapters leading up to this, Paul's reference sometimes implied, sometimes directly, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he's talking about the supernatural realities to which the sacraments point and by which we're inducted into the body and united to Christ. And with that in mind, Paul says we drink of the Holy Spirit, spiritual reality to which the cup of the Lord's Supper points, the life-giving spirit that flows to us from Christ who is the source. Now the point Paul's making isn't hard to understand, but it's really important. To be a Christian means to be supernaturally connected by the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ himself. Every single Christian, regardless of ethnicity or class or social status, is one in him. <coughs> Jews and Greeks, slave and free, as he says, male, female, black, white, rich, poor, all one in Christ, made that way by the Holy Spirit. You know, if my voice ever gets better, I'm going to keep drinking that stuff. I'm just not going to tell anybody because it's really good. So now, Paul is calling the Corinthians and us to be who we are. To live out the unity that we have in Christ, who's the king and head of the church. And of course, that's way easier said than done. That's when things get really hard. It's not easy to live out our unity. Like a newly married couple, united in law, united even in love, but learning to live out as one is challenging. It takes time and effort and a lot of hard work. It's not easy. So in these next verses, Paul's going to tackle two attitudes that sort of have showed up in the Corinthian church, show up in every church, Two attitudes that get in the way of our ability to live together in the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. So in verses 14 through 20, Paul deals with how we think about ourselves. How we think about ourselves. And in particular, how often we think about ourselves wrongly because we forget that we belong to one body. We belong to one body, verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, first of all, you got to imagine this. The foot is speaking. 
if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So we're starting with what we think about ourselves. Paul continues playing with this sort of metaphor of the body, but this is kind of Paul the comedian. You know, there's a hint of comedy. He's talking about body parts complaining about their role in the body. You can see that in the text. Look at verse 15. If the foot should say, right away you're kind of like, yeah, that doesn't happen. Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong. If the ear should say, that's a little absurd. And I think Paul actually wants us to smile at the silliness of the metaphor because quite frankly, when we think like this, we're being silly. And the question some of the Corinthians are asking has to do with a sense of inferiority. I'm only a foot and not a hand. Maybe I don't belong in the body at all. That's what they're saying. I'm just a plain old church member. I'm not an elder or a deacon. I'm just an elderly church member. I can't go on mission trips. I'm just a stay-at-home mom with no margin in my life. I'm not a woman's Bible study leader. Maybe because I can't preach or teach or stand up front and talk, maybe I'm not very valuable. Maybe I don't really belong. Maybe it would just be better for everyone if I just left and went somewhere else. And Paul is telling us that's a little absurd. He plays out the absurdity even more. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, you got to imagine this. Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? It's all sort of bizarre and kind of freakish. Not a body, just an ear, just an eye, just a nose. It seems pretty useless. But like an orchestra, the body only functions when all the parts work together. It only operates well when each part, however small or ordinary or useless that we may think, functions in harmony with all the others. And when we think about ourselves like this, we're missing the point. Sure, you may not be an eye or a hand or a nose. You don't have the same gifts that I have, and I don't have the same gifts that you have. But look at verses 18 and 19. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. That's why the kind of dissatisfaction that we sometimes battle can be so very damaging uh, for us because it's God who gets to determine the nature and range of a person's gifts. It's God who deploys them as he wills in the church. God is sovereign in this whole matter of giftedness and roles and assignments in the body of Christ. And it's really not up to us to complain that we don't have the gifts that other people have. Because comparisons are deadly in the Christian life. 
Our calling is simply to use what God has given us in humility for the glory of his name and the good of those around us. It's to use our unique gifts and our unique circumstances as only we can for the good of the church and the glory of God. So maybe you're not an upfront kind of guy. You don't do well in speaking in public. Me either. Most people don't. But you can pray, can't you? Maybe you can't lead a small group, but you can welcome new people. You can show kindness and generosity to those you see around you who are hurting, can't you? Maybe you're not going to be invited to lead a missions team, but you can still tell your friends about Jesus. Maybe you'll never be an elder, but you can practice hospitality, can't you? There's this beautiful diversity in the body of Christ as God has organized it and ordained it to be. And we're not to exclude ourselves because we don't have the gifts we see in others. That's sort of the big idea of, this, of these verses. And Paul actually brackets the section with essentially the same statement in verse 14 and then again in verse 20. Yeah, making sure we don't miss the point. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member but of many. So we belong to the body. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts yet one body. So in all our difference in diversity, if you are in Christ through faith because of the work of the Holy Spirit connecting you, joining you, uniting you to Jesus, you are in the body. And the same spirit has gifted you and called you to serve Christ. And God himself has ordained your role, your ministry. And just because it's not the same as your neighbor's, just because it's more modest, less dramatic, just because it's unrecognized or uncelebrated, does not mean it's unimportant. The body needs eyes and ears and hands and feet. And we're not to exclude ourselves when God himself has included us. So if you're a Christian, you've been included and you belong. And that's how we are to think of ourselves as people who belong. But then Paul changes gears and dealing with another attitude, specifically how we think of others. So the first one was how we think of ourselves. The second one is how we think of others, and particularly how we think of others wrongly, because we forget we need each other. We need one another. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So I want you to notice the change here from the previous section because the problem changes. If the problem earlier had to do with how uh, tempted we are to think wrongly about ourselves, the problem now is how tempted we are to think wrongly about others. See that starting in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So on the one hand, there's church members in Corinth 
excluding themselves because they felt in, inferior. And on the other hand, at the other extreme, there's church members in Corinth who are excluding others because they felt they were superior. So some are saying, I'm not needed. And there's others that are saying, you're right, you're not needed. I don't need you. It's actually a pretty common sentiment in our culture today. It's very common to hear, usually implied, I don't need you. Because then it privileges individualism. And as the modern philosophers would say, it makes the autonomous self king. I don't need you. That's the reigning attitude in our society. It's the reigning attitude of sin. You don't have to be around a toddler very long until you hear, I can do it myself. You've all heard that. Most of you have said that. Some of us still say that. But it's not the attitude that fits in the body of Christ. It's not the attitude that should be heard in the church. None of us should ever say to any other one of us, I don't need you. Look again at the, Paul's metaphor here of the body. He says there's some parts that are covered up. There's unpresentable parts. Nobody wants to, you know, see my liver, but I don't want to live without it. It says we have to pay careful attention to those parts, covering them up for modesty's sake. And we don't have to give that same kind of attention uh, to the eye or the hand, but we do other parts of the body. The point Paul's making is that you know, those who are gifted with public ministries, you're not the ones that need special attention. It's the so-called unpresentable parts, which is how they thought of themselves. And yet Paul says they're vital. He says they're indispensable. That's the word he uses for the good functioning and health of the body. They need special care and attention. And there are people in our church who have vital indispensable ministries that go largely unnoticed and sometimes even unsupported. The older lady who mentors a few younger women. The person battling chronic health issues who can't make it to church very often but is a prayer warrior and regularly intercedes for so many of us in Jesus' name. A family of modest means that opens its home on a regular basis to care for students. The quiet encouragers the servant-hearted doers, the generous givers, the pastoral visitors, the disciple-makers, the faithful helpers. Do you know who folds the bulletins? Do you know who cleans the office? Do you know who takes the offering to the bank? Well, our culture privileges the extroverts and the upfront. We need to practice extra care towards the vital ministries of brothers and sisters that largely go unseen. There's a famous story about a professor who the last uh, gave an exam, and the very last question was, what's the name of the woman who cleans this building? Well, word got around, and so everybody went out of their way to meet her. Her name was Rosie, because they knew that question was coming, and eventually the professor figured out that all the students had this uh, figured out. So the next time the test came out, 
it said, all of you know Rosie who cleans our building. What's the name of her daughter? Paul says we're to show greater honor to those who lack it. And if you think about it, that's the gospel pattern. Christ came not as a mighty conquering hero, but as the carpenter's son who became a wandering rabbi, rejected by most, crucified by the Romans. It's an upside-down, back-to-front, counterintuitive pattern of the gospel. By means of a cross, Jesus saves the world. It's also the pattern of Paul's ministry. He didn't come as the elite Pharisee, the best educated with privileged status that he planted churches all over the Roman Empire. No, he says he counted all those things, Philippians 3, rubbish for the sake of Christ. He came as the rejected, beaten, imprisoned, self-supporting, itinerant preacher who reached the world for Jesus. You know, it often seems that the guy up front is most important. And when you're the guy up front, you just look at somebody who has a bigger audience and think they're more important, the speaker at the big event. But the gospel pattern is different. It says the unpresentable parts that require special honor those are the parts that are vital. They are indispensable, without which the body cannot function well. And so Paul's correcting the mis first mistake, thinking wrongly about ourselves, in the same way this mistake of thinking wrongly about others. He, he gives essentially the same antidote for I'm not needed and I don't need you. Look at verse 24, verses 18 and 24. He basically points everybody back to God and to the prerogatives of a sovereign God who orders the body as he wills. He so composed the body, giving greater honor to those that lacked it, so there may be no division in the body, but the members would have the same care for one another, and God's put the church together this way, so no Christian is unnecessary or unneeded. And some of you need to hear that, and some of you need to tell yourselves that. No Christian is unnecessary or unneeded in the church. God's plan is the body of Christ exercises special care for one another, understanding that eyes and ears need hands and feet, and every part needs every other part in order for the good health and proper functioning of the whole. And so that in the church, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You think about it. You stub your toe in the middle of the night and you're hopping around in the darkness, it's not just your toe that hurts, is it? You know, if you have acute back pain and some of you know all about that, it can be completely immobilizing. It's not just an ache in your back. You can't move. You can't even get up. Pain in one part of the body is the pain of the whole body. And when one part suffers, the whole suffers. Or conversely, if one part is honored, the whole body rejoices together. When someone tells you, you have beautiful eyes. I hear that often. The, uh, or you have a dazzling smile. Our body language changes to reflect the pleasure we feel, you know, to bask in the glow of that compliment. It shows. We react. When we're honored, the whole body responds. That's how it's to be in the church. 
If one member suffers, we're to grieve in solidarity with him or with her. If another member is honored, we're not to look at them with jealousy, but we're to rejoice in the blessing that's received. And that is profoundly countercultural today. And Paul reminds us, I think he sums the whole thing up very helpfully in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. When we are the body of Christ, united, members individually, you know, our society, they don't get that. On one hand, they are fighting against it as hard as they can. And on the other hand, they want that so badly. Where unity and individuality is both honored and cherished, when the group doesn't suppress the individual and where the individual supports the group. Paul is saying, you're going to look in vain at all the organizations in the world for that reality until you look for it in the church. And there you'll see it, not perfectly to be sure. Corinthians are struggling to live it out. We're struggling to live it out. pages left but even here think about our church sinners though we are you can still see us as we try to live it out can't you some of you were here in December and January and you heard a whole bunch of testimonies for about seven weeks what did those people say those people carried us. Those people counseled us. Those people prayed for us. Those people cared for me. Those people gave to us. Those people welcomed me. Those people brought me back. You are those people. You are the members of the body of Christ who serve one another with compassion and kindness and love Rejoicing together in the honor that one received, mourning and grieving when one suffered. You did that. Every one of those testimonies that said how the church has made a difference, they were talking about you. Where does that come from? How do you find it for yourself? Paul says it comes from being united to Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is not to be a country club at prayer. It's not just another organization that you sign up for. It's a supernatural institution, an organism inhabited by the Spirit of God. And to belong to the church is to belong to the body of Christ, and that changes everything. So you can struggle mightily with pride. I don't need you. Or perhaps you struggle uh, powerfully with insecurity. I'm not needed. There's a wonderful hope for you in the church because the spirit of Christ flows through the body, giving it life, drawing every part together in unity to make us one. We need one another. You need your brothers and sisters around you. So here the Apostle Paul exhorts you, whatever point you are on the spectrum of needing or not needing, to begin to love the church, which is the body of Christ, to love its members and all their diversity because we are, in fact, together, united in Christ. 
You know, I read just the other day one author. He's a trainer, does small group stuff, is a Baptist guy, um, writes books and teaches. And he went to a church to help them. They did an annual training for their small group leaders and their Sunday school teachers. It was a big church. And uh, at this annual meeting, they took time for a special presentation. One of the teachers, Miss Peggy, was retiring. So they were going to honor her that night, and they had a plaque and gift cards and all that kind of stuff. She's retiring from teaching one of the children's Sunday school classes because she was moving into an assisted living home. Well, here's the kicker. She was retiring after having taught that Sunday school class for 70 straight years. 70. Think about that. That means she taught children who lost their fathers in World War II. It means she shepherded children through things like the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. It means her Sunday school class arrived uh, talking excitedly about the Apollo moon landing one Sunday. It means she taught the Bible during the tumultuous years of Vietnam, and on 9-11 she was still there. Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year, it's remarkable. And while it's easy to think it's remarkable after 70 years, I wonder if 65 years ago, we would have had the same reaction to Miss Peggy. Probably not. 65 years ago, we would have said, if somebody asked her about her, you know, she's really kind. She's a good Christian. But she's just a Sunday school teacher. The thing is, there is no just in the body of Christ. No one is just a Sunday school teacher. No one just takes the offering. No one is just a bringer of meals to the sick. No one is just a deacon. There is no just. That's what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 12. He describes the nature of being a church member. In the same way that the hand doesn't say, I'm just a hand, and the eye doesn't say, I'm just an eye, there shouldn't be any just in the church. I mean, consider Miss Peggy. How many children passed through her care? How many times the truth of the gospel went through her to those children and to those children's children? You know, I have this sneaking suspicion that people like that, the ones who serve quietly and without any fanfare but with great faithfulness, those are the true heroes in the kingdom of heaven. And we may not recognize them now, but there's going to come a day when they meet the applause of Jesus. And as you serve this week, this month, in this church, don't do it from a posture of just. Be encouraged. Know that you are essential in the body of Christ as much as anyone else. And as you see others who model that same kind of quiet service, pause and consider for a moment there is a great king who takes notice of his servant's faithfulness. And this king sees, and he will remember. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, once again, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Lord, we bow before you. We confess to the pride that makes us insecure. It makes us think that we're not loved, that we're not cared about, that we can't make any contributions, we're not worth anything, that we ought to just quietly slip away. And we confess that pride that says we don't need anyone else. Certainly not the weak and the small and the vulnerable. We're strong and sufficient unto ourselves. What lies we tell ourselves. And what a massive contradiction we are when we allow both extremes to fester in one heart. So as we bow our heads before you, we confess how much we need you. Thank you that to belong to the church isn't to belong to any other human institution. It's to belong to a supernatural organization inhabited and empowered by the spirit of Jesus who unites us to Christ himself. Because that's true, there's hope for us in our insecurity and in our boasting that we won't be who we once were, but that we'll be more like our Savior and more willing to love and serve one another. Grant that we may live like people called to be members of the body of Christ. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive the Lord's blessing from Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God bless you. See you next week.